Now, I'd like for you to open, uh, if you could, to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to talk about something that, um, well, it matters because we're going to talk about sacrifice. And uh, much of the time we talk about sacrifice, I think a lot of people get it wrong. A lot of people don't understand what that means. They don't understand what it means, what, what is God looking for. Maybe you um, are confused about it because you say, wasn't Jesus our sacrifice? Is there supposed to be another sacrifice? And uh, part of that confusion comes uh, because of the fact that there are different types of sacrifice in the Bible. And uh, we're going to talk about a few of those things. In fact, we're going to take a few Sundays and talk about the, the idea of sacrifice the question being, what is God looking for from us? What is God looking for from humanity? What pleases God? Are we pleasing to God? What do we base that on? See, we all have this, I, we all have this innate desire in us to know God and to want to please God. God put that in us. And you can look to every culture around the world and see people trying to get to God, but that's the problem People are trying to get to God, and it's a, it's a bridge too far. It's a gap too wide. They can't do it. In every culture, you see religion. In every culture, you see an attempt for man to figure out their way to get to God. And we failed at it because we tried to, we tried to tackle something that we couldn't tackle. We tried to pay something we couldn't pay. So we're going to talk about the idea of sacrifice. We're going to talk about what that means to us. But I want you to see it from a different perspective. Like I said, there's different types of sacrifice, and we're going to talk about that. But in the New Testament, you might say, well, isn't sacrifice kind of an Old Testament thing? You know, we're talking about animals and altars. And in the New Testament, several times he speaks to believers and talks about your sacrifice, what you have to give to God. There are three types of sacrifice, or or three sources that God wants us to draw from in our sacrifices. Number one is what you are, who you are. You know, of course, one of the main scriptures that you want to draw from when we talk about this is, is when God says, therefore, beloved, present yourself in light of the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. This is what God is looking for. He's looking for you. First and foremost, he wants you. So one of the first things we have to offer is who you are. Then we have to offer what you have. And what you do. All these three things are different types of sacrifices that God is looking for. But we're going to deal with some of the confusion about what that sacrifice means. Because in the Old Testament, you may not know this, but if you study the Old Covenant, there were a lot of different types of sacrifices. There were sacrifices that were given because you were grateful. There were sacrifices that were given because you were believing God even when it was tough to believe God. There were sacrifices you gave because it was a time of celebration. And there were sacrifices that you gave because sin had to be atoned for. Today we're going to talk about that type of sacrifice. We're going to talk about atonement. We're going to talk about what it means to us in the New Testament. And uh, as we're talking about God, what do you want from me? God, what do I have to give you? One of the first things we need to deal with is one of the sacrifices you can't possibly offer to God is the sacrifice of atonement. You can't do it. You don't have it. You can't fill that need. That is something, as long as we are trying to give to God in, 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 as a way of covering or um, uh, in somehow getting him to forgive our sins, if I do this, you'll forgive me. 
then we are living in a reality that takes the cross out. We're living in a reality that negates the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you're ultimately living in a reality where you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be depressed. You're going to find a distance that you can't bridge. And I want us to turn as we've turned to Hebrews, and we're going to talk about that old covenant sacrifice of atonement. You know, there was more than one sacrifice for sin in the old covenant. If you've read through Leviticus, how many of you have been brave, bold, and courageous, and maybe just silly enough to, to, to plow through Leviticus? I don't say silly. I mean, I'm, you know what? I say silly as a joke, but you really should. You should read it. You should read the whole Bible. But maybe we got to read it through the light of Jesus. Isn't that right? See, if you're reading it as if it's a word, if it's, as if you're living in the old covenant, you're going to be very confused. But when you look at it through the lens of Jesus and look at it through the new covenant, boy, it's going to bring life and light to you. In Leviticus, God lays out what kind of sacrifices he's looking for from his people. Like I said, there were sacrifices of thanksgiving, there were sacrifices of generosity, there were sacrifices of faith, but here we have a sacrifice of atonement. There was a a sin offering, there was a guilt offering, there was a day of atonement. All of these were different sacrifices. Some of them were for when you messed up and you didn't know you messed up. How many of you have had one of those moments where you, like, oops, did I, was that a problem? I remember I took my, uh, First time I took my driver's exam, um, I hadn't done driver's training before I took my driver's license test. And so I thought I did pretty good. I didn't think I did perfect, but I thought I did pretty good. Until I, fig- I get to the end, and the guy, the guy who's doing my test, we're, we're sitting there outside of where Wilson agencies used to be, Wilson registries used to be, right? You know, by Panago, that area right there. It used to be Musgrave Building as well. And uh, we're, we're, we're parked there. And he says, he points down that road that's right by Superstore, you know, between Superstore and Nelson Lumber, where that was. He says, how many lanes are on that road? And I thought, well, psh, this is easy. I got this, two lanes. He says, wrong, four lanes. And I thought, well, nobody told me my instructor was going to be high. Nobody told me that this guy was going to be living in fantasy land. There's clearly one line down the middle of the road. There's two lanes. He says, no, there's four. Because when you turn, you got to go into this other lane. You got to go right. If you're turning right, you got to go over to the right. And there's somebody that can... Well, nobody told me this because... And quite frankly, when I took driver's training after I got my license, she said, yeah, that's just something you do at your examination. Never again. (laughs) I was like, well, thank you. So I found out I had really messed up all exam because I didn't, know, I didn't know what this guy knew about invisible lanes on the road. I didn't know that. I know that now, but I didn't know that then. And it was frustrating for me because nobody told me this was wrong, but I found out it was. And I sure wish I could have gone back and paid for that and not have to take the test again. So in the Old Testament, they do things and then they go, oops, that was wrong or At the time, I didn't realize it, but now I do. And they'd offer a a, a guilt offering. There was guilt offering, there was sin offering, and then there was the Day of Atonement. All of these sacrifices had to do with the covering of sin. The covering of sin, the idea that this blood will cover your sin so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see sin, he sees you. Because the issue that we're dealing with is sin causes distance between us and God. Isn't that right? Sin separates us from God. That's what happened in the garden. And when we're separated from God, shame, guilt, they come in. 
and our instinct is to hide. But the minute Adam and Eve went and hid in the bushes because they'd sinned, God came and found them and told them, I will give you a way out of this. He told Satan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring her seed, her descendant is going to crush your head. He already set in motion a plan for redemption. And in the old covenant, the idea was that it wasn't that God was hungry. You see, the pagans thought that we offer animals because gods get hungry. I don't know how it works, but somehow they eat the animal while it burns. That's not what God needed. God doesn't get hungry. Isn't that right? I know I'm not telling you anything revolutionary here. But it's not like God was like, what's on the, what's on the, dinner, what's on the uh, plan for dinner tonight? Ooh, Josh, Josh made a big mistake. He's going to bring me a goat. I'm hungry. Mm, I can't wait till he brings me that goat. That's just silly. God doesn't need that. God didn't actually need the sacrifice. We needed to offer it. But it was the blood that mattered. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Thank God the rest of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life. But the wages of sin was death. In fact, the scripture says, and we're going to read it, without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sins. There's no remission of sins. Now, many people today would say, well, that's just barbaric. What kind of God? That was a, that was a Stone Age God. Come on, we've moved on. You guys know that God interacted with the people where they were at. And there were some things he said to them that had to do with their time. But that God also is eternal, is infinite, is outside of time. And so God does not change. He does not get more modern or less modern. He's always been. And so there might have been ways that he interacted with them, which had to do with their culture and had to do with their time. But one thing that was eternal was the fact that without blood, without death, sin could not be forgiven. That's a cosmic truth that goes beyond time. The wages of sin is death. How many of you, when you get a paycheck, go to your boss and say, thank you, thank you, whatever possessed you to give this to me. You're such a nice person. Anybody do that when you get a paycheck? I mean, I suppose it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but no, you earned that. He didn't just decide to give it to you. She didn't just decide to give it to you. You earned that paycheck. That was where your wages, because that was what was agreed upon. You work, you get that. When we say the wages of sin is death, that's not some arbitrary rule. It, this is what happens when we sin, because God is life, right? He's the source of life. So when we sin, we separate ourselves from life. See, people talk about it like we sin, and God's just like, oh, you ticked me off, and there has, somebody has to die. That's not the case. When you separate yourself from life, what's left? Death. So there's a gap between you and life. There's a gap between you and God. But he says the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus bridged the gap. And the reason that the Israelites in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had to, had to you know, kill these animals and shed their blood was because that animal was a stand-in for them. What would you prefer? An animal die or your son die? I know some of you are so enlightened that you're like, ooh, that's a tough question. <laughs> that's not enlightened. That's a problem. Because humanity has a special place in God's eyes. I believe we should treat animals with respect, but they are not humans. Right? We all can agree on that, right? And God valued humans above everything else. So sometimes an animal would die in our place because something had to. That animal was not just dying in our place. It was symbolizing to these people that someday the perfect 
sinless Lamb of God would be killed for them. And that was Jesus Christ. That was the value that was placed on us. And I want to read you this in Hebrews as we, as we turn there, and hopefully you're already there. We'll start in Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll move to chapter 10. Hebrews 9, 18 says, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle, the vessels, and the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, that the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, that means this is the point. All of history has come to this point. He has been manifested. He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What it's saying here is that in the old covenant, God showed them a pattern. And it was a pattern of drawing near to God. Because their sin had put distance between them and God. But how many of you know God is not content with distance? God does not want to be distant from you. And you shouldn't want to be distant from God. All of humanity's problems, all of the world's problems have come from our distance. And everything that's going to redeem it has come from Jesus bridging that gap. So we see that that he, he created this pattern you know, Moses didn't just get together with his guys and say, you know, guys, like, we need a mobile place to worship. Needs to be able to pack up, needs to be able to uh, move easy, put up easy. What can we do? How can we make this work? We need a lobby so that people can, you know, fellowship in the lobby. We need a, we need a place past that where some people with instruments can hang. We, you know, this wasn't about a human dream, dreamt up place. This was about something that God gave them a pattern because this was something that existed in heaven. The pattern that Moses created was a copy of what already was there in heaven. And so he said, here, here is the deal. People came to the outer courts knowing that God was in the middle. And even get into the outer courts, you had to be one of the covenant people. And once you got there, you had to wash. And then there was a a ceremony for the priests to enter into the next stage. In the next stage, there were things in this room. And we won't go into all of that. We've gone into it before. We won't go into it today because of time. But they'd go into this place, and they'd wash, and they'd, they'd sprinkle things with blood. And then one guy, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, the inner court, the place where God's presence was concentrated. And he had to go through all this ritual because you could not draw that close to God with sin. If you did, you would die. And it wasn't because God was trying to kill people. This is the opposite of that. It's because the natural natural order of things is that 
when sin and holiness come into contact, sin and glory come into contact, something will give way. God created all of these sacrifices. You might think God created these sacrifices because he needed something. But it wasn't that he needed something. All of these things were to make a way for sinful people to draw near to a holy God because he wanted to be with them. So it says this. It said when Jesus, Jesus didn't enter the tabernacle on earth. He entered the heavenly tabernacle. He didn't enter with the blood of animals. He entered with his own blood. He doesn't have to do it year by year because he did it perfectly. It says, otherwise he needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, once at the consummation of the ages, you got to know this. What happened on the cross and what happened in the resurrection, all of history before and after points back to that. That was the summing up of all things. That was the point of history was that redemption of humanity. And when that happened, he put away sin by the manifestation, by, by his own sacrifice. And inasmuch, verse 27, as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. You know you're included in the many, right? To bear means to carry, to wear, to take on. He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who wait eagerly for him. I'm in that group. I don't know. I hope you are too. But because sin has been dealt with, now when he returns, he's not going to have to deal with that again. He's going to return to a people that are his own. It says this, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they, wouldn't, they would have been ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. What he's saying is, guys, if that sacrifice could make you perfect, we wouldn't have to do it every year. We'd be done. Every year we had to sacrifice an animal. Every year we had to go through this process because it wasn't able to fully cleanse you. It covered, but it wasn't able to take away your sin. In verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book it's written of me to do your will, O God. This is Jesus. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we've been sanctified through, and that means made holy, made clean, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thank God. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. You know, the priest never sat down because you, that, to sit down in, in that place would be to say you're done. I'm done. My work is done. And their work was never done because people keep messing up. But Jesus sat down 
because his work was finished. Then it says this, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What I want you to see from this is is that God has a plan for you that goes beyond simply going to heaven, simply being saved and saying, well, when I die, I won't go to hell. Right? You know that. What a lame way to look at life. If that were the case, why didn't God just rapture us the moment we received him? Save us the trouble. If the whole point of life is just to get to heaven, there's so much more. He wants to know you right now in this life. But let me tell you something. You can't do what God's called you to do as long as you're still living in an old covenant reality where you're trying to make up for past sin. Because look what he says. He had to cleanse us from an evil conscience so we could do the will of God. Jesus had to get rid of the first so that we could do the second. Look at what he said after, after telling us how Jesus' sacrifice was enough for us. He says, then draw near. Now that we know we've been made clean, now draw near. What God is looking for is intimacy with you. What God is looking for is a people that he can call his own. We have to learn. We've been to, we're going to talk about sacrifice in the next few weeks. But the first thing we need to learn is that your sacrifice is not a covering for past mistakes. If that's the reality you're living in, you're trying to pay a debt that's already been paid. You're just going to end up discouraged because you can't pay that debt. You know, my son brings home these little crafts that he makes in preschool or, or in nursery or in your toddler room downstairs. He comes up and he brings these things to you and he's so proud of the thing that he made for you. And it means so much to me because I'm his dad. And I, I, I could bring it today and say, who will give me 50? Who will give me 100? And, and because you guys are so nice, maybe somebody will throw us some money at it. But honestly, it has no worth outside of that. It, it, it's not worth enough. You know, if Moses came to me and said, Dad, I've been thinking. Uh, I've been thinking we need a new house. And I've been thinking I want to pay it off. So every day, I want you to take my drawings from preschool. I don't want you to sell them until we pay off that house. Bless his heart. We're not going to live that long, Right? So if he was making me these things to pay off a debt he could never pay, do you know what's going to happen? He comes to me a year later and says, Dad, how far along are we? Well, son, we're $2.50 closer. What is that going to bring? Discouragement. He's going to say, there's no, there's no joy in that. There's no life in that because he's saying, well, what can I do? 
But when he brings these things to me and there's no expectation that he owes me anything, just brings them to me. Do you know how much they're worth to me? They're worth more to me than you could ever count because my kid made that. And it matters to me. And I love it. And it's valuable to me. And if he stopped making those things, I'd be disappointed because I love when he makes these things. You see how it changes the game when he's trying to pay a debt? He can't pay that debt. But when he's working from a place where he already knows his debts are paid, where he already knows his standing with me is not in question, I'm not going to kick him out of the house because he's not pulling his weight. He's my kid. I love him. That's not going to change. So now we're at a place where he can bring something to me that brings joy to my heart and that I enjoy because I enjoy him. As long as you're trying to pay that debt, as long as, you know, we're responding out of guilt, as long as we are responding, say, God, you know, I messed up. Here's what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll do something nice because, you know, that's what you learned in the world, that someday you'd get to the gates and for some reason St. Peter would be there. Right? There's nothing in the scripture that says Peter's going to be waiting at the gates for you. I, I think he's done enough where he doesn't have to be a doorman. Or the guy at the guest book registry. But we think we'll get to the gates and he'll say, uh, 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 let's balance, let's see. Good deed, bad deed. Good deed, uh oh, bad deed. Oh, and this is a heavy bad deed. And somehow the cosmic scales are gonna balance out and we'll see if we were good enough. But you guys know the Bible doesn't say the wages of a lot of sin is death, it doesn't say the wages of more sin than more bad things than good things is death. This is the wage of sin is death. That scale was already tipped the first time we disobeyed God. You can't win that game. So there's not a scale. And sometimes we know that, but we still live like that, right? I got to balance out. I did this. I got to balance it out because, man, I got to make that up. Now, listen, there's a difference between responding out of guilt. There's a difference between that and, and making right something that you did wrong. Let me give you an example. If I stole your car, now, I have no skill to do that, so don't worry. I, I don't know how to hotwire a vehicle. I mean, I saw it in the movies, um, but I think if I tried it, I'd probably just toast something. I'd fry something. It wouldn't work. But imagine I stole your car, and then I, I, I'm driving. My spirit within me says, this is bad. You should not be doing this. I get out of the car, I park it, and I say, God, forgive me. Oh, I don't know why I stole that car. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I, I thank you that your blood covers me. I thank you that I'm clean. And then when you say, can I have my car back? No, no, it's under the blood. <laughs> God forgave me. I'm just going to drive your car around. Wait, 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 you stole it from me. Yeah, 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 but I asked forgiveness. We're good now. Me and Jesus are good. So I'm going to keep your car. Uh, you take that up with the big man. Well, that's not right, is it? You know, there's something that happened when Zacchaeus had a meal with Jesus. Jesus didn't say to him, make everything right and I'll eat with you. He didn't say, get your life together and I'll have dinner with you. I'll go to your house. Jesus accepted him right where he was. But his response to that grace, his response to that mercy was to stand up without anybody telling him to do it and saying, what I've stole, I will pay back even four times what I've stolen. That's our response We get that wrong because we think, so many times we think, if I respond this way, if I pay back, then the cosmic scales will be equal again. But let me tell you, what we saw with Zacchaeus, if he was just trying to make up for the wrong, he would have paid back 
the exact amount he stole. But his response to the grace of God was so real and so big that he said, I'll pay back four times what I've stolen. Grace will take you further than your own obligation to the law would ever take you. So Zacchaeus showed us that, that there is a, a, a making right, an avenging of wrong. It says in 2 Corinthians 7, when, when this church had come to a place of repentance, Paul said, I saw what you did. What avenging of wrong, what zeal. In everything, you proved yourself innocent. They went and tried to make it right again. They weren't doing it to make God happy with them again. They were doing it from a place of saying, we've been forgiven. Let's act like we've been forgiven. What I love about this is that our response to the atoning work of Jesus Christ that paid for our sin is to draw near. And then it's not just to draw near to God, it's to encourage one another. What can we do? Do you notice that? Let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How I can help you step out of your comfortable area and step out and begin to do things that God has created you to do. You see, you're not doing those things to somehow make it up to God. You're doing those things from a place where you already know who you are. The example we're looking at is Jesus Christ. Before Jesus Christ did anything right, Well, he did. I mean, he lived his whole life sinless. But before he did any miracles, before he ever did anything as the Messiah, he heard this. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, being sinless, never had to make up for a mistake, did he? What was he able to accomplish from that place? Jesus, being sinless, didn't say, well, my debts are paid up. I might as well sleep. My debts are paid up. I might as well just fish the rest of my life. My debts are paid up. I might as well stay home and just, and just enjoy life. I'm, I'm, I'm mortgage is paid. This is easy. No, he said, I've come to do your will. He said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus worked from a place of knowing he was pleasing to God. Being pleasing to God is not our goal. It's our launching pad. You got to know that you're pleasing to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, what you do may or may not be pleasing to God. I'm pleasing to God, but if I go punch somebody in the face at McDonald's, that's not pleasing to God. No matter how much he loves me, that's not pleasing to God. Unless you're St. Nicholas, then you can do it. Little joke, nobody gets that? We'll talk later about the Council of Nicaea, all right? Let's just say Santa Claus isn't who you think he is. He's way cooler. Okay, I got to tell you now, all right? Real quick, this has nothing to do, because it's just awkward. I got to tell you, St. Nicholas was a real guy. He's not fat. He didn't drink Coca-Cola, and he didn't have a beard or climb down chimneys. But he was a bishop, and he was a godly man. And uh, there was a council, a church council, where they're arguing about the nature of Christ, the divinity of Christ. Somebody gets up and says, Jesus was not really divine. And he's turned a lot of people away, so they're arguing about it. And uh, there's an argument back and forth, and this guy named Arius was just so snotty about it and so bold about it that Nicholas jumps over the, the, the seat and comes and just smacks him in the nose because he, he was insulting Jesus. <laughs> so my friend had a T-shirt that said, Santa Claus is coming to town. It was a picture of him punching a guy in the nose. <laughs> that has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight, this morning. So back on track. 
That's the story we should be talking about. (laughs) I want to read you something from the book of Romans. I want you to ask yourself this because we're going to talk about other types of sacrifices that God's looking for. But today, I thought we should start from a foundation of what God's not looking for. God's not looking for you to pay a debt you can't pay. God's not looking for you to make up a distance you can't make up. And you may say, okay, I accept that, but let me ask you, how do you respond when you sin? Is it your effort to make it right? Is it your effort to bring, to bring yourself back to God? Or do you trust that what Jesus did for you is strong enough to bring you back in a relationship with God? Because if we are still responding, if we're still living out of a sense of debt, we're going to be in a lose-lose game. We're going to be depressed, discouraged, and we're not bringing life to anybody. In the book of Romans, chapter 9. <clears throat> so you know what? Let's just start in chapter 10. No, let's start chapter 9. Sorry. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Just as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So many of us, we get so fired up about our zeal, right? Man, that person's excited. They're passionate for God. But zeal without knowledge is misdirected. Zeal without knowledge could cause just as much damage as it could cause good. You put a, you put a group of kids on a field and tell them to play any sport. The first time they play it, they're, they're expending a lot of energy but accomplishing very little because they got zeal, they've got energy, but they don't know how the game works. Zeal without knowledge, he said, caused these Israelites to work hard but to never attain righteousness. He says this, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes, the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith says as follows, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which you're preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you were to go through the book of Romans, especially in this section, you'd find out that in this section, he is drawing from a certain book in the Bible. He's drawing from one place in the scripture, and he draws from it, and he quotes from it over and over again. And in this is the place when, when he says, who will say, who will go up to heaven or who will go down to the abyss? 
He's referring to something that God said to his people. When he first gave the law, Moses said, these commands aren't too hard for you. Don't say who will go up to heaven to get it. Don't say who will go down to the abyss to get it, for here it is. But they found out real quick that it wasn't hard to find out what the law of God was, but it was sure really hard to live it. And now, in this New Testament, Paul is weaving Christ into this narrative. And he says, don't say who will go up to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. You could not go and ascend to heaven and do what Jesus did for you. He said, don't say who will go down to the abyss. That is to raise Christ from the dead. You could not possibly raise Jesus from the dead. You see, it is futile for us to accomplish what Jesus already did. It's futile for us to try. It's vain for us to try. And what we miss is this. It's not just a waste of your time. It will block you from doing what God actually wants you to do. Because look at the, look at the, the people that Paul is praying for. He says, my brothers, my Bible school buddies, my, my guys, my friends from the Sanhedrin, my friends from the synagogue. The problem with that is that they're not saved. And the reason they're not saved is not because they didn't do enough good things. It's because they tried so hard to establish their own righteousness that they rejected the righteousness of God. Praise God. Well, that was neat. <laughs> sometimes your speaker just, sometimes your actual speakers just get into the message and they just, you know. I don't know what that was. I don't want it to happen again. Whatever it happened. They tried so hard to reach God in their own strength that they missed the very thing that would get them to God. Here's the problem. We think we can live in both worlds, but you can't. If you were falling off a cliff and you grabbed onto a rope, but it was a frayed rope, it was a rope that was going to give way any second. And I leaned over the cliff and I said, that rope's not going to hold you. You're going to die. Let me throw you another rope. This is a good rope. And it dangled next to you. And the only way you would get to it is if you jumped off this rope and you grabbed onto this one. Because there's a, too much distance between the two. At some point, you're going to have to let go of that rope so you can grab onto this one. You can't try to hold on to both. It won't work. As long as you're trying to hold on to your own attempts to be right with God. That's the surest way to be wrong with God. It's the surest way to find yourself dead. Because seeking to establish their own righteousness... They neglected the righteousness of God. They did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. I've seen so many people who've tried so hard to be accepted by God. It's not that it's, it's, not that it's a good thing to try, but it won't get you all the way there. It's actually the opposite. It will keep you from receiving what God has already given you. Listen, we need, God wants something from us. We're going to live for God. We're going to work for God. We're going, to, we're going to do everything he's called us to do, but we're going to do it from a place of already knowing who we are in Christ. Not trying to get there. Not trying to pay a debt. But working from a place where our debt is paid. See, we've been called to walk in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God. Jesus worked from a place of knowing he was pleasing to God. He was not spending his life trying to gain God's pleasure. He was working from a place where he already knew he was walking in God's pleasure. He already was pleasing to God. 
Until you can receive that, you're going to miss all that God's got for you. He's saying, don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? It's interesting because that who will ascend to heaven, who will descend into the abyss comes from Deuteronomy. But don't say in your heart also comes from the same place. It comes from a different chapter where God said to them, don't say in your heart when you get to the promised land, I did this. God uses that phrase, don't say in your heart, often when he's talking about pride. Don't say in your heart, I can go up to heaven and get this. Don't say in your heart, I can go down to hell and get this. You can't do either. You could not do what Jesus did. And as long as you're trying, pride will keep you from the grace of God. I can't wait to dive in to all these other sacrifices that God's looking for. But none of them will mean anything if we're still working from a place of debt. Now listen, you might say, shouldn't I be aware of my great debt? Look at it this way. I believe that woman that broke that perfume over Jesus' feet was greatly aware of the debt, but she was not in a place where she still thought she had debt. She was in a place where she knew she was forgiven of her debt because Jesus said she's, forg- she's been forgiven much, so she loves much. She was not responding to the enormity of her sin. She was responding to the enormity of the mercy of God. Today, I'm aware of how much I needed him to die for me. I'm aware of how short I fell to the glory of God. I'm aware of how far I was from God without him. But I don't look at it like I'm aware of a debt. I look at it like I'm aware of a debt that's been paid. Let's just put it this way. And we're drawing to a close here, guys. Have you ever owed somebody money that you didn't have money to pay them back? Yeah? Sometime in your life, you owed somebody some money. You couldn't pay them back. How did you act around them? That's a tough, it's, it's a tough, it's awkward. In fact, you get to a point where you don't even want to see that person anymore. Even if they don't ask you for it, you still don't want to see them. You don't want to be around them because you owe them money. Now listen. What about somebody that paid a great debt for you? You don't avoid that person. You're grateful to that person. You're happy about that person. When that person said, boy, it was my blessing to do this for you. Oh, no, you don't owe me a thing. I wanted to do this. God gave me something, so I gave it to you. And praise God, we're both happy, high five. You, all of a sudden, that relationship is strong. You love that person. That's the difference. If you're going to God feeling like there's a great debt you owe, you're not going to draw near like he told you to do in Hebrews. You're going to stay away because you feel unworthy, you feel guilty, you feel sheepish every time you come to him. But if you are aware of the great debt he paid for you, there's not debt between the two of you. There's just a whole bunch of gratitude. So somebody says, well, should I remember how bad I was? Should I remember how sinful I was? I say only if you can look at it in light of the mercy of God. If you can say, this is the enormous debt that he paid for me, then yes, that's how you live. But if you're looking at it and saying, this is the enormous debt I owe, someday I'll pay it back, you're going to be depressed, you're going to be discouraged, you'll never do a thing for Jesus. Somehow we hear this and we go, yeah, but I'll be, that holy, I'll be the person that's just holier than everybody else. I can handle it. No, you can't. God says, in order for you to serve him, 
something had to change. You had to become perfect in here. So you can believe that. You're going to live a life of frustration. There's so many sacrifices that we have for God that come out of a place of gratitude, that come out of a place of faith, that come out of a place of love. But the sacrifice of debt, the sacrifice of atonement, we must believe that that's been paid. Because until we believe that that's been paid, all of our other sacrifices are going to be tainted. You've got to believe that straight up. And I know you come to a church where we believe that. In fact, most churches in town believe that. I know most of you are have been saved long enough that you believe that in your head. But the truth is, this is something I still deal with. I believe it in my heart, I believe it in my head, but there are times how I respond to guilt, how I respond to knowing I messed up, I've got to respond in light of the cross. I don't make light of my mistakes. I don't make light of sin. But I've got to run into that flow Run into the gracious blood of Jesus. Run into it and know that that is the place where I'm going to be able to do something for the kingdom from a place of acceptance, not trying to be accepted from a place where I already know I am. People say, I wish we could just live, I wish it could be just like it was when we were dating. No, you don't. You don't. You say that. But none of us want to go back to the place If you're married, you don't want to go back to the place where it was when you were dating, and I'll tell you why. Because that is not sustainable. Because when you're courting, dating, whatever you want to call it, you're putting your best foot forward. You're you're hiding some things. I'm not talking about being sneaky. I'm not talking about like hiding skeletons in your closet, but you don't put your real self out there. You put your best self out there. There was a friend, my sister had a friend who said, you know what I do for my husband? And they've been married for like a long time, I thought. You know what I do for my husband? I wake up early before he gets up and I go put my makeup on then I get back in bed so he can wake up to me with my makeup on. (laughs) I thought, I don't know, that sounds exhausting. If your husband can't get over seeing you without makeup at some point, something's busted. Now, whatever, I'm not judging their relationship, but I would not want my wife to think she had to do that, or even that I would want her to do that. And so, there's something so rich, there's a richer type of love that comes from knowing they know everything about me and they still love me. When you can believe that about God, he knows everything, and he still loves me. He still accepted me. I'm still his kid. It's freeing. It's a richer love. It's a deeper love. You'll be able to work from that love. You'll be able to bless people with that love. That love works life in you. As long as you're still living the dating life where you think I hide the messy stuff and I put forward the good stuff, your relationship with Jesus is going to be shallow. It's going to be a shallow relationship that can't offer anything to anybody else. Today I want us to embrace the atoning work of Jesus Christ once for all of us, once for all time. It was enough, it is enough, it's still enough. Move from that place. Let go of guilt, let go of shame. If you need to make something right with the Lord, make it right. But know this, your status is not on shaky ground. You are a child of the king. 
Your righteousness does not come by working hard. It comes by faith. That faith is going to be the, the, the roots of the tree that's going to bear good fruit in your life. Amen? Those good fruits are good works, good things that will bless other people. But it's got to start with the right root. Amen? Stand up with me.